the work doesn't go away in the heat and it was in the middle of Ramadan, so therefore the, the hottest part of the year, 52 degrees some days. Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd and this is Life on the Line. The single greatest sacrifice I've made is my family. We weren't out there to take country, we were out on your That was their job. I did feel a lot of regret. Friends were still getting killed. It got to the point where you know you're going to funerals quite often. Do I leave under fire? And that was a heavy responsibility, I guess, on my shoulders that I didn't want to screw up. War itself is horrific. It's a horror story. You should never be dressed up as if it's something glorious. Not what you can do for yourself, but what can you do for your country? The volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line. Ken Whitten joined the Army Reserves as a gunner in 1988. He then went full-time, including serving as an electronics technician. He deployed on border protection operations and to Afghanistan and Iraq. Today, he is transitioning into a civilian career at Babcock in defence industries. He spoke with Sharon Maskeldare, who also works at Babcock. I'm Sharon Maskeldare. And you're listening to Life on the Line. In today's podcast, we meet Ken Whitten, who enlisted into the Army Reserve as a gunner 33 years ago and is transitioning out to pursue a new full-time career in defence industry. Life after service is a focus for Ken today as he reflects on his deployments, his time in the Army, his lessons learned and what they mean for him today in civilian life. Ken, thanks very much for joining us on Life on the Line. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. So tell us a bit about where you grew up and what your childhood was like. So I grew up mainly in Sydney. My father was a gunner in artillery for 23 years and most of his postings were in the Sydney area. We lived in Townsville for a small stint and then his last posting was here in Adelaide where we fell in love with the town and that's where he chose to raise his family after his service. So it sounds like you grew up as the rather well-known army brat where you were kind of travelling around a fair amount and your dad had lots of different places, different postings where he was based. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, when you're in Sydney and you're living at Holsworthy or Hammondville, it's a pretty normal thing and and half the people you go to school with are army brats as well. But I I distinctly remember coming here to Adelaide and, you know, army people and travellers from interstate were something that the school didn't get a lot of and uh, that was quite interesting moving into school that didn't have new people from around the place. So when you were a a young boy, what was your perception of army and the military? Did they hold a fascination for you? Did you like to play soldiers? I mean, how much was it part of your culture growing up? Uh, I think it was just a normal part of my culture. Um, It was an interesting time. Everybody I knew, their dad was in the army, navy or, or air force. So, you know, that's the games. We played war games and all that sort of stuff as young primary school kids and so on. My grandfather was still in the army when... I was a kid growing up, so he was finishing up his career, and so he was still in the army. My father was in the army. We used to watch the Sullivans on the TV. I don't know if you know that, but back in the 70s and 80s, there was this long-running set around World War II sort of a show, and, and everything was army it just was normal to us it's funny you know because i actually grew up in the uk and even i was brought up on the sullivans i remember my grandmother insisting we watch it together when i was a young child so even in the uk had a whole following 
But thinking back to that time, what do you remember then about the stories that were perhaps handed down in your family from your your grandfather about wartime experience? You know, what, what kinds of stories were told when you were growing up? I don't think we've changed a lot over the years. I think we don't pass on those stories firsthand as much as what we should or could. Don't ever remember getting told anything from my father and I would have been told stories about my grandfather's service through my mother. And I knew that he served in New Guinea. I knew that he started off as a reservist back in those times because he couldn't join or couldn't get permission from his parents to join the army until he had turned 18 or 20 or whatever the legal age was where he could not be guaranteed or signed off by his parents. Once he was old enough, he then enlisted and went to New Guinea. So he's seen out the last parts of the war and probably the clean-up and, and everything post the closing down of the war. He came back to Australia, built a house in Albury where he came from, um, started raising his family there. And then as times got harder and as his family grew, he re-enlisted back into the army and he joined the army again in 1958, which was about the same time that conscription was on. And when he enlisted, he did his basic training at Pakapanyul with with a whole heap of uh, national servicemen at the same time sort of thing. Uh, he stayed in the army until 1981, 82, something along those lines. Yeah, seen out his, his career as a, as a storeman working out at Moorbank. And what about your father? Because your father served in Vietnam. Dad enlisted into the army. His father was in the army, so my other grandfather was also in World War II. He had served in the Middle East, was wounded, unfortunately died when my father was 10. So he probably didn't have a lot of stories himself about it, but he had a proud history there of his father's service. And so he enlisted and joined the army in 1960, Vietnam 1966. A 13-month tour of duty or something along those lines, he went across as a reinforcement and subsequently when his battery was returned back to Australia, he then moved on to the next incoming battery, which, which came through, or next incoming regiment, I should say. That sort of padded out his, his time there for flight availability or something along those lines. So he, he spent more than the, the standard 12 months there sort of thing. Did he talk much about his experiences in Vietnam when he came home? I don't remember getting a lot from him. He told me that because he was a reinforcement, there was a uh, personal protection party which was required. Some American general loved Australian soldiers so much he wanted them as his personal protection. And everybody was saying, we're too close to the end of our deployment, we're not volunteering for this. So him and a few other guys that arrived when he came into country were told, you're it. And so he said that was quite interesting because he got to visit everywhere that this American general was visiting throughout Vietnam. He spoke of that being a great experience and eye-opener to see how the rest of the war and how the rest of the Allies or Americans were doing business and all that sort of stuff. Did he talk to you much about an experience of threat or indeed it sounds like if he was in that personal protection mode, he would be constantly thinking about his responsibility to protect others? I don't know about the responsibility side of things. He told me that, you know, there was a few times there that he was quite worried about the lack of knowledge of the Americans for someone that might be wearing an Australian uniform and they would see something different to what they were used to seeing and, and even in the confines of a very large base might feel that, you know, was a threat to them and raise their weapons and halt who goes there and all that sort of challenge them. And he's like, geez, you know, that was a bit over the top sometimes. Some of these guys, it was like, we're Australians, we're just... Wear a slightly different uniform. It's not that bad. And back in those days, of course, it was all 
greens anyway. So, um, yeah, must have a sharp eye if they're picking out the small differences. I, I couldn't imagine too much of a difference from what I've seen of those old uniforms from back in the day. So the Americans were mistaking Australians for the enemy? Yes, yes. I don't think it came to any real life uh, serious you know, life in danger sort of situations, but they they were challenged quite a few times by guys that were a bit spooked when they seen someone in a different uniform. But clearly growing up, hearing all these stories, it sounds like it was an inspiration for you rather than anything else because you then decided to then join the Army Reserve yourself. So take us through that decision-making process for you and how things panned out when you first joined. As a kid at school, I wasn't very academic at all, you know, probably a larrikin even back in those days. So I was always in trouble and, and I just thought, well, I'll probably follow my father's footsteps and join the Army because I don't have to get A-grade levels to do that. My father was adamant that I... He was happy for me to join the army, but if I did, he wanted me to do something where I would come out of the army with a lot more than what he had. He was a stormy, he was an artilleryman and an artillery storeman, and you know his qualifications didn't transgress across with civilian qualifications back in the in the early eighties. We didn't have that sort of mapping for that sort of thing. So he said, if you're going to do it, you should probably look at getting a trade. So that sort of got me looking at trades and army as options as a kid. And then by the time I was 16, I just wanted to get out of school. So I I took the first apprenticeship I could find. That'll be my way out. So I did that. And an apprentice back in those days was earning $115 a week cash in hand. And that was not a lot of beer money. And, you know, when I turned 17, my father said, well, if you want to earn some more money, you can always join the reserves. I know somebody that's working down in my old unit at Keswick Barracks and we can go down there and have a look. And me and my twin brother, I should point out, yeah, the two of us um, both seen that as a good opportunity. So my twin brother was also a apprentice. He was working in steel foundries and I was working as a furniture polisher. And so we thought we'd give it a go. We really liked it. I think back in those days, the, the Army Reserve side of things was a lot of tradies that were supplementing their wages and there's a lot of networking going on as well. There's There were guys that worked in building trades that would be like, I need a plumber on this site. Do you want to come across? I'll find you some work. And that was not unusual to, to hear those sort of conversations happening in the boozer after parade. So it was a really, really good lifestyle. I really enjoyed it. So other than that sense of kind of mateship, networking, connections, what was your first impressions, though, of going down to the barracks? I mean, I suppose because you'd grown up with it, perhaps it wasn't unfamiliar. But what did you first think when you, you saw the place? Did you think, yeah, I want to hang out here? It's different when it's no longer your dad's place of business and it's going to be yours. There was a few reality checks there where I was like, okay, you know, I was 17 years old, so, and I was still in a boy's body and <laughs> I was still growing up and learning and, and all that sort of stuff. And I had no real stories of what dad had actually done in Vietnam. And I didn't even get told a lot of what he did in the army. He just kept that sort of stuff to himself. I really was enjoying that part of it. On day one, I remember talking to the recruiting officer, who's a warrant officer, and him and my dad were friends. They were talking about old times and all this sort of stuff. And I was like, now I can actually find out what this really was all about. And what did you discover in those early days? What strikes you thinking back in terms of those very early experiences that have stayed with you? I think the first thing that you learn is it's hard work. Picture my dad doing that hard work, doing it in more oppressive conditions and all that sort of stuff, and doing it 
day in, day out. I mean, the best thing about being a reservist or the best thing for me at that time was it's only for a very short period of time, for a weekend or a couple of weeks here and there, and then you, you go back to normal life. Yeah, I had a lot more appreciation for some of the, the hard work that goes into being a soldier. So for people not familiar with artillery and being a gunner, what does the job actually involve? I mean, when you were parading, when you were doing your reserve time and earning that extra bit of beer money, what were you doing? Were you playing with big guns? Yeah, absolutely. So they had uh, 105mm howitzers down there. It was really good to go back to work on a Monday after I'd been firing those things. And someone would be like, oh, I went duck shooting on the weekend. I've been, I was firing a 105mm howitzer into, you know, lobbed it 9Ks down the road into an impact area. And they'd be like, whoa. As a young man, I thought that was really, really cool. The mateship is fantastic because it doesn't matter, as I've learned through my whole career, the more people that are side by side with you when you're doing hard work, they become a friend for life. You know, and the harder the work, the better friendship that's going to come out of it sort of thing. That kinship of being there when the chips are down and working together as a team to get through whatever bad time you're going through or whatever hard work you're going through. Now, after starting out in artillery, you ended up crossing over to the Royal Australian Mechanical and Electronic Engineers. Yeah, so I joined the I joined the RAMI. So after being a reservist for a little while, it's quite challenging to balance your everyday job, your part-time job and your, your social life and family life. And so I got out thinking maybe I just can't do this. It's all too hard. My employer needs more of me and I'm, it's interfering with my job and my uh, progression. But that sort of didn't work out for me. I did all that and it didn't make my full-time job any easier or better or me have a better relationship with my bosses. So I sort of came to realise I maybe should have all those years ago become a full-time soldier anyway. I loved it. I had a passion for it and I was really enjoying my reserve time when I was in previously. So after a two-year hiatus, I joined up, but I I re-enlisted as a full-time soldier that time. Because I'd only been out for two years, I was offered by the recruiter to keep all my qualifications I had through artillery, and that seemed like a good option for me. So I joined the artillery as a full-time soldier. I was posted to Brisbane and had a great time there. I was in for about eight years there and I was a bombardier and just, you know, worried about my career progression and looking at my options. And the Army had a a transfer scheme that was you could transfer to the RAMI, Royal Australian Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, for a a trade bonus. And it was $21,000, I think, for changing over sort of thing, and half of which I was paid on the first day that I arrived on my course. It was a 22-month course and I got the second instalment 12 months into that. So I didn't even have to pass and I'd get this money. So that was pretty cool. And it was, yeah, sorry, $25,000. So that was, a, that was a lot of money and um, it got taxed, but it was still really a good incentive for me. Regardless of the money, I just wanted to do something different. I, I felt that I was going stale, but I didn't feel that I wasn't enjoying being a soldier anymore. And being a soldier was something I was always proud of. And, you know, I, I enjoyed putting on the uniform and putting on the boots every day. And I just needed something different. So that was my motivation. So I went back to school and did some calculus at age 39 and, and learnt electronics, which I didn't know a lot about. Never looked back. I really enjoyed my time through the RAMI as a, as a full-time electronics technician. 
So before we move on to the deployments that then followed, tell us a bit about that fascination with electronics. I mean, what is it for you, having done that career change, having gone from big guns that you could impress people with, as you say, on a Friday night down the pub with your mates, to circuit boards? What's that about in terms of that fascination it had for you? My fascination was as an operator or a gunner, I use this equipment frequently and especially digital equipment and electronic equipment, it breaks down constantly. You can't get it fixed easily. And I wanted to be part of the solution, not part of the problem anymore, so to speak. So that was my fascination with it. I still don't look at circuit boards and and go, that's amazing, that's wonderful. It doesn't excite me. But what I do love doing as a technician is providing the customer, the operator, the user, his equipment back fully functioning. And that's my job satisfaction. I look back at my time through everything that I've done through military and civilian career, it's giving that support to the end user is is something I've always done. Whether it was field artillery support to the infantrymen on the ground or whether it was giving support to the tank commander or the, the ASLAV commander that his turret and weapon were able to work properly. Now, going on this new pathway opened up a whole range of new experiences for you, clearly. Talk about that first deployment that you had then back in 2003. Tell us where you went and and how that came about. So the first deployment I had was when I was still in artillery. We were deployed on the uh, border protection operation, which was Operation Relics back then, or Operation Relics 2. That was an eye-opener for me. I was in the Army while Timor was going on, but... There was not a lot of use for artillerymen in Timor. So there were small roles and, and small parties going across, but we generally missed out. So just gaining that experience of, of something that was a real-time operation that was important, that was, you know, at the time, very important to the government of the day in how, you know, we do business and how we're perceived around the world and all that sort of stuff, yeah. And going back to that time when you were working on border protection, what was the atmosphere like? I mean, were you having to deal with a lot of of boats that were coming into Australian waters? What was the situation back in 2003? Uh, 2003 was a very good year, I would have thought, for border protection as a whole. For myself and for everyone that was deployed on, on our rotation, there wasn't a lot of refugees coming in, or illegal entries, I should say, for various reasons. I think I put it down to the good work that was laid down by the people that were doing the operation before us and the the government way that they handled and, and the decisions they made for protecting our borders. It was a disincentive for any people smugglers to be using those sorts of routes for trying to extort or use their trade. You're still going to be in the ocean bobbing around and sometimes it can be a bit boring. Sometimes it can be very frustrating. I remember we were heading out to Ashmore Island on a patrol boat and everybody thought it was quite amusing to get the army guy out there to steer the boat. And so this, I think it was 120 metres long sort of a boat and I don't even have a tinny. So, and if you ever see me drive, I'm not very good at driving. Here I was driving this boat and it was really cool and everybody would you know, step up to the bridge for whatever reason, take one look at me, shake their head and walk out again going, we're all going to die. There was a cyclone in the area at the time and it was bearing down on us. We decided Ashmore Island couldn't be reached so we were heading back towards the mainland and that was not my decision of course, I was the captain of the boat made that decision. 
And so he set a course and we were heading away. I was getting more and more nervous as the sea state got bigger and bigger. And, and these waves were getting pretty big and it affects how you can steer the ship. So I wasn't steering very good at all. A huge wave pretty much picked up the boat and turned us around 180 degrees. So we're facing in the wrong direction. I don't even know how that happened, but only I could have done that, I suppose. And I've never been seasick before then, but I was certainly seasick uh, about 10 minutes after that. That was when you know, everybody decided that the army guy should not steer the boat anymore. <laughs> and we headed off towards dry land. And uh, by the next morning, I remember waking up in something that was like a, an absolute paradise. It was, you know, waterfalls and it was a big open cove. It was up in far north uh, Western Australia and it was just beautiful. And I just couldn't, I can't believe that 24 hours ago, I was trying to outrun a cyclone. I was going to ask you what your sea legs were like. So it sounds like you discovered on that particular trip they weren't particularly robust. No, they weren't too good, but um, better than others. You know, we had one soldier and, you know, he he didn't join the Navy. He didn't expect that he'd be ever on, ever on a boat and he didn't know that he would be that seasick. But he was, we spent about a week on a, on a patrol boat and the whole week he just stayed at midships throwing up the whole time. He could not find his sea legs at all. And there was nothing we could do about it. We couldn't say, oh, well, sorry, mate, this is not for you. You can go home now. He just had to keep pushing through for the next boat ride and so on. And you came back from that trip. And so in the intervening years, because it was another 10 years before you deployed again, what were the highlights of your career with Ramey during that period? When I joined Ramey, I joined Ramey in 2008. And so 22 months to get qualified and then another year of on-the-job training. So I started my on-the-job training 2010, 2011. And so it wasn't until 2012 that I was, you know, at my first posting. In that time, they were already gearing up for their deployment overseas. So in 2013, I, I, I deployed. So everything was going at a very fast pace and setting the tone for making sure that people were qualified, fit, ready and able to deploy come 2013's rotation. And this was to Afghanistan and 2013 was towards the end of Operation Slipper, the drawdown period. So tell us, when you first found out you were definitely going to Afghanistan, given what was known about the threat and the reality, the fact we had lost a number of, of Australians during that war, what was your feeling about going overseas? You do have to look at your own mortality. The Army was really good at that point in time of making sure that everybody knew that this is a reality that comes with these sorts of deployments. You had that conversation with your wife about what should happen and it's an uncomfortable conversation and you've got to have it you keep saying oh i'll be right don't worry about it <laughs> i don't need to be getting worried about these things you don't need to worry about me because she'll be right because i've got a she'll be right attitude on everything but you can't just pass that off with her she'll be right and so you know we had those conversations we we set the will up we looked at power of attorney situations for we were trying to buy a house and we're doing home loans so you know, power of attorney might have been something that, that might have been quite helpful. And we looked into our options with all that sort of stuff. In 2013, it'd be fair to say that we were getting quite good at preparing our soldiers for going into Afghanistan. So I don't feel that I was underprepared in that type of capacity. The training and the realism in training was excellent. And I think it set us up. 
some of the scenario-based training and the mission rehearsal exercises, some of the training I did when I got to AMAB was some of the best training I can remember doing in my time in the Army. So I felt really good about it. As far as a technician is concerned, nothing could have prepared me for the amount of equipment that I would be dealing with. And there's a lot of equipment that the first time you see it is when you arrive in Afghanistan. There's Blue Force Tracker. There's equipment that just doesn't get used in this country or hadn't been used at that point in time in this country. So that had its challenges and that made it really, really interesting. Tell us what it was like then arriving actually on the ground in theatre for the first time. I anticipate that you've not been to Afghanistan before, so this would have been a, a whole assault on your senses, surely. Yes, absolutely it was. I mean, when you fly into Darwin for the first time and you step outside of the airport and, and the, the humidity hits you in the face, it's, it's a very similar feeling to that. You sort of, you step out of the plane and, and this oppressive heat that you've never had before. And unlike Darwin and so on, it's there's it's no humidity. It's just it's such a dry, hot wind that's hitting you in the face. And yeah, you're just not ready. For, and the, the smell is the one thing I remember the most is that unique smell that I probably burning from the rubbish tip, sewerage and cooking from the townships and, and just all of that mixed together was it was quite a unique smell that I don't think I've ever experienced uh, before or since. So where were you based in Afghanistan? So in Afghanistan, I was in Tarankal. By that stage, we were bringing in the last of the uh, forward operation bases back into Tarankout. Even while we were there, we were reducing our footprint within the uh, multinational base at Tarankout. Everybody and everything was decreasing in size. And as it decreased in size, it got pulled into a central location in the centre or close to the um, accommodation at Tarankout. What was the mood at the time? That sense of, of drawing back with preparation for full drawdown. What did that feel like? Similar to what my grandfather did joining the Second World War in the last stages of the war, I, I, we all knew that there was a drawdown. We knew this was the almost final part of our operations in Afghanistan. We thought that pretty much that was going to be the end of it within 12 months of us being there and we wouldn't have the troops that we still have there today. But we certainly knew it was the end of Operation Slipper and we knew that Tarrant Cout was going to be, you know, left with, with no more Australians there sort of thing. Everybody felt really, really happy to be there and everybody wanted to do their bit and stay there. You know, we all wanted to do like more cool stuff and we wanted to go outside the wire and be like all the other guys that went before us and went outside the wire, but we, we didn't get to do that. And, you know, at the end of the day, you just do what you're there to do and do what you're told. And so that was us. You know, we had a couple of times where we thought there was something going on where, you you know, someone, a recovery of a vehicle that's outside the wire, we might be required, people would be put on ready and ready to go sort of thing. But, you know, decisions get made higher up than that. And sometimes, well, most times they got canned and that didn't happen. So... If that frustrated us, it didn't frustrate us for long because we were just really glad to be there. And I imagine that when you came home and shared your experiences with your family, they were probably pretty grateful you didn't go outside the wire, right? Oh, my, my wife is very, very grateful that I didn't have any stories to tell. It's a strange situation now, you know, compared to previous wars and so on. We have technology now where you step off the plane and you get your accommodation, you get your ammunition, and then you get your password to log into Wi-Fi almost straight away because it's hugely important and it, it, it seems like it shouldn't be, but that, that being able to reach out 
to loved ones and tell them that you're okay is more important in some aspects than than even your own welfare because you will be fine because you're surrounded by this great network but you know families you know that the networks aren't there like they used to be but the social networks it's really easy to skype with your family and say look i'm I'm fine i'm happy i'm eating well everything's going well i miss you and so on you can do that you know every day if you have to so coming back from that deployment did you feel though a sense of satisfaction did you feel like you had made a difference that you had helped in some way oh 100 i was very very proud of of what i had done you know, because it was the drawdown, most people that I deployed with didn't get to finish their full tour of the six months that we were told we would be there. So as we got pulled back to return to Australia, you didn't want to leave, you know, and it's hard because you do want to see your family. So I flew into Darwin. My family was back here in Adelaide. And the day that my plane arrived in Darwin was my twin boy's second birthday. Darwin to Adelaide just seems so, so far away. So all I wanted to do was be with my family. But I, at the same time, I really wanted to be back there with my mates because I knew there was still a lot of work to be done through the, the drawdown of Afghanistan and the continuation and the handing over of, of, of power in, in Uruzga. So for people listening to this edition of Life on the Line who perhaps have not had that experience of separation from family, that homecoming, how would you describe it? What's it like? The best story I have for telling anybody anything is after being in Darwin, 24 hours, I'd handed in all my kit to 2CAV Regiment and I was in my car and I was driving back to Adelaide. I'd set myself two days to do it. I had some good friends that I stayed with at Alice Springs and they fed me and, and gave me a nice bed and the next morning I was up early and away I went. And I think I'd planned to actually not go all the way to Adelaide. I was going to stop at uh, Port Augusta because that was quite a bit of driving. Port Augusta is so close. So I just kept driving through the night and at two o'clock in the morning, I arrived in Adelaide with my eyeballs hanging out of my head, you know, knocked on the door. My wife was there. It was fantastic to see her again. My two-year-old boys were still sleeping in cots at that stage sort of thing. And they were asleep, we whispered and tiptoed into the room and all that sort of thing. I collapsed and went to sleep and probably had the best night's sleep I'd had in a very, very long time. I woke up at about five o'clock that morning when the kids stirred and my wife came in and had one of my children in her hands and said, who's that? And this kid looked at me and went, daddy. Now, I'd never heard my child actually say those words before. He good and guard and dad, 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 and this, 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 that, that, that. But he'd never, ever said that before. And that was fantastic. In about five minutes' time, the other child did exactly the same thing as well. You know, I just sat there in this big double bed with both my twin boys under my arms and Afghanistan, where, I don't want to go back to Afghanistan right now. I just wanted to stay there forever. It was just fantastic, yeah. That's an incredible story, Ken. I think lots of people listening would really, really connect with that, that sense of family. How wonderful that your twin boys both knew you were daddy we spoke about skype being such a wonderful thing you know like you can skype with your children your children they don't really understand why this person on the video screen is so far away or even that he is so far away but they know who he is and they gooed and guard and they pointed and they giggled at me and all that sort of stuff so they certainly knew who i was when i was there but it was just fantastic now, in a matter of just a couple of years, though, you ended up back in the Middle East area of operations with Task Group Taji 3, just north of Baghdad. That must have been 
quite a wrench for you, having been away, come home, reconnected with family. What was the decision-making process like for you to deploy again? Well, it's certainly different having children who now understand that daddy is going away for a very long time. They didn't have any concept for where Iraq was or what was going on there and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, for that time, the four or five-year-old kids, and they're waving goodbye to me as we're unloading all my kit from the back of the car at the compound at 7RR, waving goodbye, giving them a hug and a kiss, and they know what's going on. You know, they, they understand. And they didn't understand the dangers or anything. They just knew that Dad was going away for a very long time with the Army. And, yeah, it, it does get worse. If I went away now, my kids are now 10 years old, and, you know, if, if I was to go away tomorrow for something like that, they would have 100% knowledge of what is going on. And, you know, I worked with people who had 10, 13-year-old kids, teenagers, all that sort of stuff who they do know what's going on. Trying to rationalise that to their kids and saying, look, you know, no, I can't be there for your dance recital. No, I, I can't be there for the BMX finals. It's just something I can't do, mate. It's a complexity I never had to live through and I feel quite blessed that I didn't because it's not impossible. Everybody gets through it, but um, it must have been challenging. So let's just set the context. It was 2016. The Battle for Mosul was raging in northern Iraq. You were over there with the 7th Battalion Royal Australian Regiment. What were you there to do? So my role was primarily as a uh, biomed technician. So one of the specialties I got as an electronics technician was to do biological and medical and dental equipment. So the hospital facility that was there at Taji, that was my responsibility to keep the equipment working and repair it should it have any issues or breakdown. The task group there was there to train Iraqi forces and enhance their training. We weren't training recruits or anything along those lines. We were enhancing the training of, of their soldiers already, which some of these guys had just come out of Mosul to come and do this training and were going straight back in there again. And that would have been a very interesting dynamic and would have had its challenges and rewards when you know the training teams were out there with those soldiers at the time. I worked at the hospital. I kept the hospital going. I had a very short period of time that I was there. I was relief in place until someone else gained the same qualifications as I had and then came and filled that position. So I was sort of enabling him to do it and also as part of the unit just, just making sure that that job and that role was fulfilled. Now, I found myself at Taji, the rotation after you with rotation four, but uh, we'd like to hear from your experience. How would you describe to people listening to this program, what's Taji like? How would you describe it? It's like a trailer park in the desert. And at the end of the day, it's, it's a military base and it's a training facility. And we had to remind ourselves that this wasn't Tarrant Cout. This was a training facility. So we did spend a lot of time making sure that our bootlaces were laced up the right way, that we were wearing the correct equipment. And it seemed like such an odd thing to be doing on a deployment. And sometimes you, you might be frustrated thinking that this is not an important thing to be worried about sort of thing. That's how training is. And the perception that your target audience has on the professionalism of its people providing that training was very important. And as corporals and diggers, we all shook our heads. But on reflection, I, I think I understood where it came from. 
Did you have much contact then with the Iraqis that the Australian army was training over there at that time? Did many of them ever get to the hospital or did you have any opportunity to go out onto the range where they were doing their training and meet any of the Iraqis? Sadly, I didn't get the chance to do that. There were plenty of guys who I worked with who might have done non-training activities. So whether it was ferrying people to and from as as drivers and they were part of uh, my organisation as well. There were a couple of jobs that other technicians and other mechanics would go out to and deal with these guys all the time. The armament fitters were constantly going out there and fixing their weapons level of trust that they would say, no, this, this weapon is completely fine. It works fine. You should be able to shoot with this. And he's like, how come I keep missing the target? Because like, you're a bad shot, mate, not because there's anything wrong with the gun. But, um, yeah, you know, it was quite interesting to hear those sorts of stories. But, um, you know, my time over there was, once again, I was blessed that there it was a low period of activity. I didn't see a lot of people coming and going from the hospital. We didn't have any incoming rounds or any emergency uh, surgeries, all that sort of stuff. So there was the odd person who, who needed surgery for whatever I don't know. I'm assuming, you know, they might have had something that would be considered to be um, a non-emergency here in Australia. And given you had the experience of deploying both to Afghanistan previously and now to Iraq, what was different about those two deployments? There's some obvious differences in terms of the perhaps the work you were doing, the length of your time in, in country, and obviously the nature of your day-to-day -day operations. But what were the other differences that perhaps stand out to you now thinking back? I don't know about the differences so much. I mean, it, it's a very different place. You think that one place in the Middle East is going to be the same as another. It is a completely different place, just the feels, the smells, the senses that you get with being there. I remember in both deployments, the element of risk that was always considered with whatever job we did. Both deployments were not outside the wire type employments. If there was a job on, you always knew about jobs on, you're always getting prepared as the information fed down and the warning orders came through. But if there was a high risk, no one wanted to put an Australian soldier in a high risk situation. So the risk aversion was always high. And that usually meant we're still able to achieve that aim, but we would do it in a different way. And one thing that I imagine was similar was that experience of heat. I remember when I arrived with the rotation after yours, people were saying who'd been there that previous six months through the, the Northern Hemisphere summer, were just saying how intolerable and how difficult it is to describe what it's like being in 50 degree heat. What was that experience like for you? My biggest memory of that is is definitely in Tarrant We moved the workshops from its location uh, where we had three very large hangars for the entire workshops for Tarrant we moved them over to the flight line area where we moved into three shipping containers and a smaller hangar, a large tent. Moving all that heavy equipment on the back of Macs and Mogs and, and trailers and so on, just this, the amount of sweat. And it was in the middle of Ramadan, so therefore the, the hottest part of the year, 52 degrees some days and just cooking and that sort of thing. Um, you learn to rely on air conditioning a lot in, in the Middle East. There's plenty of it. You just need to find it, have a rest, have a drink when you can. There's, there's always cold water somewhere. There's all that sort of stuff. The one thing that I never got used to was every demountable toilet block was air conditioned, which is something that you don't get here in Australia. And that air conditioning generally recycles the air. So that the smell of a recycled 
air-conditioned toilet block is something I'm glad I don't experience much here in Australia anymore. And in Iraq then, was the heat similar? Because that's certainly how I know some people have described it, that it was that intense, oppressive heat. But did you experience it the same way? Yeah, I did. I think I was more ready for it this time. I think, you know, having experienced it before wasn't too bad. You learn those tricks and you learn to actually looking after yourself, firstly, with regards to hydration and all that sort of stuff. We had a workshop in Taji, which was just a brilliant place to work. It was an air-conditioned hangar. So once we'd driven our vehicles and our machinery in, we would close it up and let the air conditioning do its job. That certainly allowed us to be able to get turnaround times that we had hoped for to get the work done because the work doesn't go away in the heat. You just have to slow down so that you can work in accordance with how hot it is. It's the same as when you go away on an exercise here in Australia, especially in Northern Australia. Over there, we were able to, to use those sorts of facilities. It's good to have those luxuries. So coming back from Taji from Iraq, it was not long after that you started to think about moving on from your army career. Why was that? What was it that prompted you to decide that perhaps it was time for a change? Firstly, I would say because of my age. I'm, I'm now 50 years old. There's no endless way to stay in the army forever. You, sooner or later, your body catches up with you and you can't do the things or your body won't do the things that it once used to do. I've been quite fortunate. I haven't got any real major injuries. I've had a bit of uh, twisted ankles here and there. Had a, uh, a back injury, which towards the end of my career became quite difficult to deal with, but you learn to manage back injuries. It's You can't fix them unless you need surgery, and even that's never going to fix it. So you learn to manage it, and, and I got better at that. I had a diagnosis from a, a bowel screening, which wasn't favourable. Now, I was a temporary sergeant at the time. That then reduced my med class. Once that reduced my med class, I had my promotion taken away from me. I was busted back down to being corporal again, which seemed very, very unfair. And it was completely in line with the policy and the way it should be. It, it, if you looked at it in a common sense way, it felt like it was not right, but it was it was just unfortunate that in that 12 months that I was a temporary sergeant, I was given this diagnosis and, and had my mech downgraded. You know, I spent another 12 months working to get that mech upgrade because I actually, I was asymptomatic. I wasn't having any major issues. I mean, if I had a cancer issue or something like that, the last thing I would have cared about was what, what rank was on my sleeve or anything. You know, it was 12 months to work through that and then finally get that upgrade, then get that promotion back up again. So, you know, it's just sort of go can I keep dealing with this bureaucracy that comes with working with defence? It wasn't that I was being treated harshly or anything, but, you know, the bureaucracy caught up with me and was was giving me a serve for 12 months. And we got there. It wasn't the end of the world, but, you know, it takes a lot out of you. And I thought, well, maybe it's time to start looking at something else. So you obviously looked around and tell us what you're doing today. So I work for a defence company called Babcock in the uh, counter CBRNE department. We take care of logistics and maintenance requirements that's involved with uh, modification and maintenance for any of the CBRNE equipment. So just to tell our audience, so counter CBRNE is counter chemical, biological, radiological, nuclear explosives. And as part of that team, tell us about the kind of people that you're working with. I love working here with the people I'm working with. 50% of the people are Army or Navy or Air Force and the other 50 
don't come from that background at all. And it's really good to have that blended sort of environment where we can all leverage off each other's sort of experiences. I'm working with people from the Navy, people from the Air Force, and I'm really enjoying uh, their perception on things, whether it's defence-related, who are our primary customers, or whether it's doing our job and the way that we set up our uh, environment here in the, in the workplace. It's been an excellent transition to come from defence to working in this sort of environment. I have to keep reminding myself that I'm not in the Army anymore. Apart from not wearing the uniform, it feels like I'm still in the Army. I wasn't really good at wearing uniform when I was in the army anyway and probably spent the last 12 months hardly wearing the uniform or trying to avoid it as much as possible. I still feel I'm part of the defence community. I still feel that I'm contributing to, once again, supporting the elements that require this sort of type of equipment in the army. Now, given the whole wealth of experience that you had when you are in the army and the fact you're obviously now working defence industry... What kinds of skills and ways of working, ways of operating do you think you've brought across to the civilian world? Because this is something that's become a national issue now in terms of supporting veterans' transition, and clearly you've managed to do it successfully. So how have you gone about that? I feel quite fortunate that there's so many qualifications that the Army gives you that's absolutely a necessity for this job. When I presented my resume for this job, which was the first resume I'd ever written in my entire life. And somehow it got me the first job I ever used it for. So that was a bit of a fluke. You know, I can't imagine too many other companies out there that would have been looking for the same qualifications that I needed. The handful of other companies that do the same as what we do. And that's about it. Having that appreciation for the end user and the customer, which is the defence force, and having an understanding for what their needs are, what their urgencies are, and for the unseen, unexplained, they need to make contingencies, they need to be prepared for doing anything. And when they have activities that are on the horizon that they're planning for, they need to know when their equipment's going to be on hand and, and whether it's serviceable. They can't deal with what ifs or maybes or any of that sort of stuff. And um, having a, a civilian partner that can do that and provide them that sort of understanding and, and know exactly what information they require when they get feedback on what the status of their equipment is, I think is reassuring for those who are involved. And I think it's one of the things that I like about this organisation being able to provide for Defence Force. And you've talked about so many aspects of your of your life in our interview today for Life on the Line. You've talked about yourself as a member of the army, as a husband, as a father, and now working in the civilian world in defence industry. So when you think about all of those different experiences, what do you think the army has done in terms of forming who you are today? What has it done in terms of shaping character, do you think? It's given me that work ethic that has carried me through to this day. I think I noticed it from my time as a reservist, as an apprentice. The hardships that you go through, you get, might be only away for a two-week exercise or something like that, and you're out in the back of Woomera somewhere and you're covered in flies and prickles and, and underfed and, and just having a terrible time, but loving it at the same time. And then you come back to your normal job and someone's having a whinge because someone didn't order the, the right screws that he uses for making the the construction on, on those drawers and he has to use the, the anodized screw instead of the stainless steel screw or something along those lines. And you're like, mate, you know, it's not important. It gives you that perspective. 
Do we need to just stop and move on and then continue on with what we're here to do, which is to achieve the end task of this job? And that work ethic, the military gave me that. I didn't have it beforehand. I think it's definitely set me up for that. So looking back, do you genuinely have a sense of pride? Oh, 100% I have pride. I've never ceased to feel it, and I think it's going to live with me as for as long as I go. I'm really lucky I have a very supportive family. You know, obviously everyone who was in the army before me, they know, they understand, and, and, and their pride is there every day. My wife and, and my kids are extremely proud of me, and they tell me often, which is fantastic. My kids invite me to their school to come down on Anzac Day. They love it. They just love that Dad comes down there, talks to the kids about Anzac Day and about the spirit of Anzac and all that sort of stuff. I've got to say, I enjoy it as well. I came from that background where dads and granddads didn't talk much about their experiences and stuff like that. I don't talk about war and I don't talk about, you know, anything that might be confronting for children at primary school age and all that sort of stuff. But I talk about, you know, how the legacy that the Anzacs have left before us have taught us lessons and set us up as a country to be the unique people that we are. As a, a veteran of modern conflicts, you know, I feel that I'm sort of the custodian of that Anzac tradition and that's our job now is to pass that on to the next generation and have the Anzac spirit as well. Maybe they don't have to go to a conflict somewhere to keep that Anzac spirit going. Ken Whitten, thank you so much for sharing so much of your experience, um, your memories and some of those incredible connections that you've articulated about family. I think that's really strong and I think our, our listeners will take that away with them today. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed it. I'm Sharon Maskeldare and you've been listening to Life on the Line. You can find photos related to today's interview on our social media. Follow at Life on the Line podcast on Instagram, Facebook, and YouTube at LOTL pod on Twitter and Thistle Productions on LinkedIn. For more on Sharon's time in Iraq, jump back to season three and listen to number 45, Dr. Sharon Maskeldare. Everyone who deploys, who has a family knows it's a reality that you are away from the people that you love. Find out more about the team behind this show and our full catalogue of over 200 episodes at www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Werkhoven. Thanks for listening. And lest we forget. <laughs>